This is the ASC podcast with your moderator, Kevin Pei, Yale School of Medicine. This program brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the Association for Surgical Education. Embracing the mission of excellence, innovation, and scholarship, the ASC is impacting surgical education globally. podcast. Today's topic is the flexibility and duty hour requirements for surgical trainees trials. We, we uh, most of us know as the uh, first trial, and uh, and we're you know, we're really happy to have our expert today. Our guest of honor is the principal investigator of the first trial, Dr. Carl Villamoria. Uh, he's currently the John Benjamin Murphy Professor of Surgery at Northwestern and Director of Surgical Outcomes and Quality Improvement Center, as well as the Vice Chair for Quality. Welcome, Carl. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I also want to introduce my co-moderators, uh, Dr. Alan Harsman, who's Program Director of the General Residency Program at Ohio State, is also the Chair of the Education Technology Section at ASC, as well as General Surgery Resident at Yale, uh, Sam Ali, who's going to be a SURF Fellow pursuing a career in education. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us. So, Carl, if you don't mind, give our audience uh, some background um, and a little bit of context to the first trial and the the uh, important findings. Uh, sure. So, as you know, uh, the ACGME uh, had introduced DDR policies in 2003 and 2011, and uh, there had been considerable pushback from the surgical community about uh, what effects this might have on continuity of care and resident training. And uh, the ACGME was feeling additional pressures about potentially having to go down to uh, maybe even 60-hour-a-week limit. Um, And so the leadership of the American Board of Surgery, the American College of Surgeons, and the ACGME got together and um, uh, came to an agreement that that bringing evidence to this question of duty-hour policies would be a worthwhile endeavor. So we uh, we designed a trial um, that looked at what would happen if we introduced flexibility in duty hour policies. Um, and particularly, we're interested in day-to-day flexibility, um, where the, the limitations of duty hour policies didn't inhibit continuity of care on a particular day. We weren't looking at sort of the overall 80-hour work week. We were interested in things that, you know, precluded residents from staying to finish an operation or stabilize a patient. And so, those were the you know caps on hours per day or the time off between shifts that we were most interested in. And so we randomized uh, 117 programs across the country to a standard policy arm and a flexible policy arm and looked at patient outcomes and resident outcomes um, during the uh, trial. The, uh, the findings were that the, the, there was no difference in patient outcomes between the two study arms. And the overall resident outcomes were no different as well. But the residents did note several areas of their training um, and their perceptions of continuity of care and patient care that were better with flexible duty hour policies. Uh, interestingly, they they told us that uh, they strongly preferred flexibility. So only 14% of the residents um, that we surveyed, and we surveyed pretty much every resident in the country that was in the trial, uh, only 14% would want to stick with the current duty hour policies. Um, and so most were in favor of flexibility. And uh, and so this trial really 
got the ACGME's attention, and then they put together the DDR task force. And uh, that's what has led to this recent policy change that they just announced. And uh, right, and it's it's really you know the media has picked up on it, and we saw a lot of press about it uh, over a few months months period, and it just seems like a changing paradigm, and maybe what's going to happen. But could you just also explain to the audience when you talk about flexibility, it's not about the eight, the eighty hour work week still stays. Is that correct? Correct. In the in the trial, we maintain the eighty hour work week, the requirement to have one day off in seven and the requirement that you couldn't take call more frequently than every third night. So we kept those three basic rules in place. And so, you know, the the lay press likes to talk about how doctors are going to be working more, um, and that's not really the case. The ADR work week is still in place. And so instead, what this flexibility allows is residents can shift where their hours are within the week to uh, get uh, better educational experiences and to care for patients uh, without increasing the total overall number of hours. So, I, you know, when talking to my colleagues about the findings, we're really, I think a lot of the faculty are particularly very excited about introducing some flexibility into the previously very, very rigid rules. But one of our questions for you is, you used surgical outcomes as a measure of, um, I guess, what's superior or non-inferior in terms of the two to residency hours, but what about um, things that are potentially not captured by NISQIP? For example, patient patient care for patients who didn't have surgery, for example, or um, maybe in hospital errors or medication errors that may not um, may not show up on a NISQIP. What are your thoughts about that? There are always additional data points that I would love to have as a researcher, and so all of those are valid points, and it would be great to get those data, but they're not readily available, and it would have really changed how the trial was done if we attempted to capture all of that. Um, this is a pragmatic trial. It occurs in the natural setting. It's used to study uh, policy changes, and it typically uses um, existing data, and that's why we were able to leverage the NISQIP data to study outcomes. And that's really the bottom line of uh, patient care. We wanted to make sure that no matter what we did to changes in duty hour policies, that um, the the bottom line of healthcare, you know, patient, patient outcomes were not affected. And so I think it has um, the most validity, but certainly there are other outcomes that may be interesting to look at. They're just challenging to capture. And so I'm going to really jump ahead in terms of what do you think the um, next steps are after the public? I mean, after publishing this, what do you see the direction of the duty hours going? I think there are a couple things. I think the ACGME is committed to monitoring the impact of this policy change. Uh, with data. So they want us to continue to evaluate patient outcomes and resident outcomes over the next five years. Uh, that's to ensure that there's no uh, worsening in you know, patient outcomes or resident outcomes, which we don't expect, but you never know unless you're, you're monitoring. Um, but there are many that actually feel that you may actually see an improvement over time as well. Uh, so we'll be, we'll be doing that. Overall, I would sort of like the controversy around duty hours to sort of melt away at this point. I think we have tested common sense flexibility uh, that I think all of us thought would be potentially helpful and shown that it's safe. And now the ACGME has acted on that and implemented reasonable flexibility. So 
we need to be able to train physicians within 80 hours. We need to be able to abide by these rules. And if we are still worried about safety, we should start thinking about other approaches and hopefully just talk less about duty hour policies. It's not the end-all, be-all of surgical education or of surgical safety. So the next frontiers come in finding better ways to train residents and provide a safe environment for patients. Um, and hopefully these, these duty hour policies can just be our, our standard for many years to come. All right. That's a, that's a great point. And my, my next um, question slash comment will be maybe to also, Alan, if you can chime in um, being a program director is, within the context of still sticking to the 80 hours and introducing flexibility, let's say a resident stays uh, to, to continue care and they, they've stayed 20 hours during one particular shift, um, how do you operationalize making sure that you still stay within the 80-hour work week but still maintain the flexibility? I think one of the things that most of us have done in trying to make this work is to go is to change our system. So like we have our interns and second years on call five days a week are a night float resident. So that's somebody who's just going to work those nights and the others are not working those nights. So if they work a long day or if the night float resident stays over, their schedule as they're scheduled has a lot of extra hours in it that I don't think will hit 80 hardly ever. Uh, certainly not if we continue to average it over four weeks. So if we, if you totally undo that and go back to, you know, the person who is on call tonight is responsible for a whole lot of operations tomorrow, uh, five days a week, then that's, I think, how you would get back to 80. But if we leave some of these systems in place, I think it'll just take away some of the, the angst around getting home and sort of what I felt even when I was a third-year resident when the 80-hour work week started and really just sort of added another level of things you were responsible for to your training. Uh, and I think that's really continued. And my, my personal, the way I read the, the results is that that's kind of what the residents feel, is that ha having been given that flexibility, it just makes them feel much more autonomous as a professional uh, and really not dealing with these other restrictions on their ability to be a good doctor. Uh, but I think if we, so I think if we leave our system about like it's been for the last several years, uh, I think you could work a lot of extra and go before you hit 80. Mm -hmm. And the one thing uh, I think is important is if you uh, schedule up to 80, um, meaning you're, you're sort of the predefined shift length that you've sort of set up for your residents is at 80, it'll be, it'll be hard for them to flex up. And so what the ACGME has encouraged is scheduling, you know, south of 80 so that they have the ability to stay when they need to stay or want to stay. Um, the other interesting thing that we that I touched on earlier, you know, um, certainly most of the residents in the trial were positive about flexibility. But what was really interesting was that if they were in the flexible arm and experienced flexibility, their positivity around flexibility went up even more. So if they saw it, they liked it even better. And so uh, that is, again, very encouraging that, uh, you know, the residents want this flexibility and, and um, have ideas about how they want to use it and why they want to use it. It also increased as they got older. So as you increased in your in years in your residency, your your um, enthusiasm for flexibility went up dramatically. So um, I think that's a it could what we're learning from our interviews with residents is that really is um, 
they they came in with perceptions about what they thought they had to do to be a good doctor, and then they realized that evolved over time and that they wanted that flexibility to be able to um, care for the patients in the best way possible. I think it says a lot about the quality of the people that we've recruited to our training programs. You know, it, it, despite having these rules and whatnot, we haven't we haven't recruited people who whose primary interest is in keeping their hours down. You know, we've really recruited people whose primary interest is still in being good surgeons and taking care of patients. And I think that that finding sort of shows that that that's really their primary interest. I found that very encouraging. Right, and actually, if I could chime in, the but the findings are that the residents are uh, residents appreciate or like the flexibility. But what are but the eighty hour work, the eighty hour uh, limit is still there. So, you know, I wonder they're purely they're they're more they're happier with the flexible side purely because it's more flexible and they get to continue an operation or or care. But are, are, do they like the eighty hour work week? I, and I know Carl earlier you had said sort of we should be shifting away from this discussion about hours, but do you get a sense from interviews with residents what are, what their thoughts about the 80-hour work part of it is? I think that residents have um, understood that they have to be around to, to learn and to care for patients. And I think they, in general, there hasn't been a lot of pushback from surgical residents about 80 hours. In other specialties, there has been. And what the ACGME allows is that uh, their policies are sort of the the least common denominator. This is where, you know, or, or the you know the limit. Um, certainly, other residency review committees, for example, in internal medicine, could set a 60-hour work week if they wanted. But I think uh, from what we've seen from the residents um, in the surveys and from the extensive interviews that we've done with residents in the trial, the 80-hour cap has not necessarily been an issue. I, I want to take a step back to something we were just talking about. And one of the things that I found really interesting when reading some of the qualitative studies that have come out of the first trial is that some residents were expressing concern that this was starting to, that the the stricter, the, uh, the standard arm was starting to encourage a shift mentality among residents for patient care. And, um, this partially because of all of these night float and day float systems that have come into place. So how do we sort of navigate those competing claims where there is much more flexibility in duty hours and the ability for residents to stay and learn when we keep night float in place, but sort of still then have this shift mentality, especially amongst the most junior residents? I would think that there's a way to make that work, and, uh, and uh, I'd be interested in what all of you think, but it it seems to me that you could have a functioning night float system that deals with new problems that come in at night, um, new ER consults, new emergencies, um, or, you know, emergent things that occur in the inpatients they can come and deal with quickly. But overall, the continuity could remain with the primary day team. And when cases went late into the evening, they would continue to do those. When one of their patients needed to go back to the operation, uh, to back to the operating room, they would come back in to do that case. And so I think there are ways to use the flexibility while still leveraging a night float system um, and trying to maximize learning um, for both the day team and the night team. 
Yeah, I, I think that that definitely makes sense and would give residents more satisfaction. The, Carl, you had mentioned earlier the ACGME is recommending that you don't want to pack the schedule so tight that there's no wiggle room for you to, sit, for example, have to stay longer one day but still make meet the 80-hour uh, week. Uh, but I still kind of go back to the how how you know what recommendations do you all have? And Alan, please feel free to chime in. How do you operationalize uh, that part to say? Well, do we schedule our residents maybe to only work the 60 hours, and then that way they have some room to to go up if if they need to? I think so, and I think that's why I think we'll probably stick with with night float, especially for our for the juniors where where we have enough juniors to make it a a reasonable period of time, um, because that's basically a 60 hour. You know, if they work about 12 hours five nights a week, that's about 60 hours. That way, if they stay a little bit late one morning, wrapping some stuff up, it doesn't drive them over. Um, it also gets them plenty of time off, which I think somebody you're asking to work every night for a month uh, is they need a little bit extra as far as time off goes. The the other is it allows the day team to come in at, you know, five or whatever time in the morning they're going to come and stay and finish those light cases like, like Carl mentioned. And especially the a little bit of flexibility in the eight hours. You know, if a case goes till 10 and they need to come back at five the next morning, you know, that's something where I think we and probably other programs were kind of in violation of that because um, that's a really hard thing to ask somebody to do. Uh, but it gives them the continuity in, in in doing that case. So I think we'd, you know, if we continue to do, you know, you work about 12 hours a day, five days a week, you round, uh, you know, one of the two days on the weekend on average, that's, it puts you in the 60 to 70 range. And then if you need to come back or you need to work over, then you, um, then you've got plenty of ceiling there. Uh, and Carl, in the flexible policy group, um, do you have some measure of how the participating programs, how many of them actually took, how many residents actually took advantage of the flexibility? In other words, you know, did did what percentage of residents actually stayed so many hours after their usual uh, the usual mandates in the standard policy group? Uh, sure. So there are two ways to look at that. We've um, asked the program directors first which of the four. Uh, policies that we relaxed, did they actually implement in their program? You could imagine that some may not change maybe the 16-hour cap for interns or the, the or relax the 8 to 10 hours off between shifts. But overall, 75% um, of the programs in the flexible arm used all four of the policies that were available to be relaxed. Um, mm -hmm. And so most of the most of the policies were being used. 100% uh, of the programs, in fact, did relax the 16-hour rule for interns. Um, the second way to do that is to ask the residents themselves, and that's the paper that came out in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons last month that actually talked about how often the residents used the flexibility afforded. As you might imagine, the interns definitely reported working more than 16 hours fairly frequently because they went to doing standard 24-hour calls. Right. Um, the use of some of the other flexibility was not quite as um, uh, hot, was not quite as often as some people may lead you to think. Um, the the lay press or some of the groups that are in opposition to DDR policy revisions um, 
uh, claim that you know they're working 24 hours every day. You know that's clearly not the case. Um, those are right. prohibited by many other rules, but it just doesn't occur. And so what we saw was that the when residents worked more than 24 hours or didn't get eight to 10 hours off between shifts, it was somewhat infrequent and it was occurring selectively. It wasn't the routine. It wasn't every time they were on call. It was used to uh, care for patients and to obtain unique educational opportunities um, in a selective uh, fashion. So to me, as a resident, one of an, another hot topic in resident education and well-being right now is autonomy. And I've noticed that your trial has helped contribute to some autonomy discussions as well, um, where residents are expressing that within a confined work week, they feel like they're having less ability to make decisions and follow patients over periods of time. Um, how do you think that this will facilitate future discussions and autonomy of our surgical trainees? Um, well, autonomy is kind of the next frontier that we need to be able to capture. I think there are a lot of other um, reasons why autonomy will be an issue. This certainly, giving flexibility to the residents and making it so they can, again, be more part of the team and more able to provide continuity of care for the patients will certainly um, allow attendings to get, you know, relinquish more uh, autonomy back to the residents in terms of decision-making um, and involvement in the patient's care. I think there still are a lot of challenges, undoubtedly, in this era where surgeons are being paid more by RVU models and productivity models, uh, and everybody's busy. How do we make sure that the time in the OR is um, efficient for learning and uh, does offer some autonomy in a structured setting? Um, I think those are great questions to continue to ask and continue to push. Things that 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 deteriorate, you know, that autonomy is is the attending or the faculty not feeling like the person is wholly part of a team, as as Dr. Bill Moria said that. And you know, if you're not going to be there Tuesday because you're post call, and it just gives the faculty the sense of of. Um, uh, can't think of the right word for it, but this, this transiency of the of the resident, and that you know the resident is somebody who's there, may be there today, may not be there tomorrow. It just doesn't make them feel as much a part of a team, and which, and the more the part of the team are, just like with med, you know teaching medical students, the more you bring them into the team, the more they participate, the more you think of them as part of the team, the more likely you are to give them opportunities that might cost you something like a little bit of time or um, things like that. I think it's. I think it can only help. I don't think it's the biggest piece of autonomy, but it it can only help. Absolutely. I wonder what the uh, I don't I wonder what the faculty's view is towards more flexibility. Um, do you have any thoughts or in, in, insight into that, Carl? Uh, well, <laughs> I think the uh, faculty are enthusiastic about flexibility. I think the bulk of attendings realize that what they trained with in the 80s and the 90s of 110 to 120 hour work weeks probably was too much. I think there are still some people who would love to hang on to the good old days, but uh, I think most people realize that 80 is pretty reasonable and we should be able to train people within 80 hours. And that's what we've heard in our interviews also with faculty. 
at the same time, they did feel that the shift mentality was sitting, setting in with residents and that residents were starting to not be the continuity of care for patients. And it ended up you know, being the attending level because the residents were, were gone so frequently. And so I think providing this flexibility and, and making it available to the residents will um, improve the, again, the autonomy and the responsibility that the attending physicians are going to offer the, the residents in the care of the patient. And so I think it's um, a win-win for everyone. It's good for surgical education. It's good for patient care. Um, and so I think the faculty will embrace it. You, uh, what, what's your experience been, Alan, at uh, Ohio State? Um, what, what's, I, I don't know. Were you one of the test sites? We were. We were in the control arm. So we've been under the, the tighter regulations the whole time. But, yeah, we've been a, a test site the whole time. So are you looking forward to, uh, are you looking forward to implementing a more flexible uh, policy? Yeah, so some of I, some of it I've not t thought through entirely. Some of I was actually taking notes about, you know, one of the things that that came up with the the current revisions that came out or announced last week was, you know, you can come back after eight hours, and as Dr. Villamoria suggested, you know, could you come back and take your patient back to the OR? So I think that's something we're going to need to talk with our upcoming chief residents about. Is that how do they envision that? How do they, you know, what what would be best for continuity versus, um, I think, you know, one of the problems that, that we had with that system in the past was you could end up, you had a big service, you could end up back every night, and that's clearly not going to work. So um, we'll have to work that out. But I think we will probably stick with night float, as I suggested, for the first and second years. Um, I would do night float for third-year residents, but I don't have enough third-year residents to, to do that uh, with. Uh, the other thing is we'll almost certainly get rid of the 16-hour, you know, shifts for interns, one of the problems that was causing, um, it was that on, on a Friday, the resident who was going to work Friday night couldn't be there Friday during the day. And so frequently, we'd have a service like ours, like the colorectal service, that had no, no intern on a Friday. And you talk about, you know, teamwork, you talk about getting people out of the hospital faster and whatnot. Having no intern on a Friday really kills your ability to send people home, So, um, among other things. So it's, we'll get rid of that um, and have those people just work. 24 hours on the weekends. Can you guys share with the audience a little bit about sort of the impetus behind the 16-hour, how that came about? Obviously, that's that's likely to change in most of the programs that's going to participate in a flexible policy. So what was the motivation in the 16 hours, and how, how might the first trial affect how that goes forward? The 16-hour rule came about in 2011 in response to an Institute of Medicine report on um, duty hours, that's the, the infamous napping report where they suggested that uh, napping uh, could be a solution. And, uh, <laughs> you know, certainly we all try to sleep whenever we can, but to sort of uh, have uh, mandated napping was kind of a, a funny thing. <laughs> but in any yeah. case, they um, put together some relatively weak evidence to suggest that first-year residents may have a harder time adapting to life as a resident and that they should probably have reduced uh, maximum shift lengths. And so um, in response to that report, the ACGME uh, put in place the 16-hour rule that was you know, clearly wildly unpopular in the surgical disciplines. Yeah. Um, 
What was really interesting was that it was unpopular with the residents. The interns did not like it at all. They uh, they likened it to being uh, kindergartners, where they went to school for half the day, but all the big kids got to be there the whole day. <laughs> they weren't part of the team. It's, and it's really yeah. what it felt and like. Only reinforced by the napping and the uh, suggestions of cookies and things like that. Right, right, yeah. right. And so they, uh, they missed rounds uh, with the attending sometimes. They didn't feel like they were part of the team. They always had to catch up on uh things in a different way than the rest of the team and so it led to some discontinuity and care and the residents just didn't like it as much and so i think uh the intern spoke very clearly about why they didn't like the 16-hour cap it was incredibly frustrating i i was definitely an intern when when that was happening and you weren't you didn't ever feel a part of the team because there was always a different intern around. You were missing out on opportunities for cases. You had very little role in patient care. You were kind of just there to do the paperwork for the day, and and then you left and did it again the next day. And it was incredibly frustrating. And so and we also saw that programs started doing odd things. Um, so programs started. Uh, having residents come in in the afternoon and then staying for 16 hours overnight. And that actually turns out to be worse for your sleep habits um, than sort of what we were doing. And so there was a um, a study of 11 centers soon after the 2011 duty hour policies went into place that um, actually surveyed uh, interns and found that their sleeping and their perception of their sleep habits was actually worse uh, uh, after the duty duty hour policy change. We did this thing where we still had to come in in the morning for rounds. So you came in at 4.35, 5.30, saw the patients, wrote the notes, put in the morning orders, had to be out of the hospital by 10 so that you could come back at 5.30. So you were waking up in in the morning to round, you were going home to quote unquote sleep and then coming back to take care of the patients overnight. So, 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 I mean, clearly people had to get creative to fit, fit all these very um, strict rules. And, um, and with the flexibility policy, I think, even from an administrative standpoint, it seems like it would actually be easier. But you had made a point earlier saying that the more senior you got, one of the findings was that the more senior you got, the more satisfaction you felt with the flexible uh, pro uh, policy. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's correct. They uh, Their enthusiasm for flexibility increased as they got older. And... We thought this could be for a couple of reasons. You could imagine that um, when the chiefs used the flexibility, they were using it to stay and do great cases, whereas the interns, when they flexed up, they were staying to do more scut. And it turned out that might have been partially true, but really it was this appreciation for flexibility that came as you took care of patients uh, for more and more years. And that really came out in our interviews. We couldn't really decipher between those two options in, in the surveys. But as we talked to residents, they very clearly told us that, you know, they thought that going to a place that would really strictly adhere to the 80-hour work week and, uh, or had, you know, uh, a, a strong night float system and um, really protected resident hours was going to be what they wanted. And as they as they increased in age during their residency, they 
they realized that the flexibility was critical. And so um, the survey responses were, were very telling there. It was actually one of the most interesting findings of the entire trial, I think. I think it's an, a very important finding, too, because to me, one of the things that's always the elephant in the room is that you finish residency, you finish fellowship, and all of this goes away. You're an attending surgeon responsible for your patients and for training your residents, regardless of how busy your calls are or how much you were operating overnight or what you were doing during the day. And we see that in all of you guys and want to become that and feel like the way training is now can take away from that. So it makes sense that people, as they moved up and used the flexibility to sort of gain more agency over their service, were more satisfied. Um, that's a great point, Sam, because lots of, you, know, you talk to a lot of faculty across the country, they talk about how, you know, a lot, yes, there are people who want to talk about the old days and the 120-hour work week, but uh, even even talking about the 80-hour work week, um, there is a, there's a really jarring transition from the 80-hour work week and then all of a sudden going, even, even in the setting of a more flexible policy, there's a jarring step to going to attending your first job and all of a sudden all that goes away. Um, and I, I wonder what the effect of the first trial is going to have on that because we've, we've been on the 80-hour work week long enough to know that, that there's definitely been some, that's a jarring transition. I wonder if this flexibility is going to sort of make that transition a little bit easier. You know, that's, that's, that's the question. So the, the idea is that if we can allow flexibility and sort of break down this idea of a shift work mentality, then do you both have a, a physician that sort of is um, more ready to do what's necessary as an attending and come in whenever necessary and is, is also committed in that way? Um, that is an incredibly difficult thing to study. I think uh, whether the, the flexible policies change that will be uh, very hard to determine. Uh, but it's certainly uh, something that a, a few of us are interested in trying to look at over the next uh, several years. It'll, it'll change a lot also because, I mean, if you look at how people are hired now, most people now are hired by a hospital or a large system. They're not, going, they're not joining a group of two or three other people. But also, the you know the as those of us who lived under at least part of the 80-hour work week grow older, I I still think that practices are going to change. You know that you're you're going to people graduate now are going to join a practice preferentially that offers them somewhere in between. You know where they feel responsible, they are responsible for their patients, they have continuity with their patients, but that the system is not designed to make them on call every day they're in town. You know, and that's how some of our systems were even a few years ago. So I think people will redesign their practice to mirror their expectations based on on the way they've been trained and the way they've, you know, gotten used to living their life, really. For the sites that were part of the flexibility arm, uh, flexible policy arm, did you learn of any, whether operationally or qualitative things, what were some of the maybe pitfalls and, and difficulties in implementing that policy? Uh, to be honest, we didn't really have too many complaints uh, from the programs or from residents in the program. In fact, we had no complaints from from either. Um, the one thing that we did see in the data was that 80-hour violations were slightly more frequent amongst 
interns in the flexible arm versus a standard arm. Um, there was no difference between the junior and senior residents in terms of uh, ADR violations. So uh, I think that is one thing that programs should be mindful of, that uh, uh, the interns are a slightly more vulnerable population and that we need to make sure that uh, you know they are adhering to the ADR rule. Now that there are fewer duty hour policies um, in place, uh, the ACGME has made it pretty clear that they're going to enforce um, the 80-hour rule even more vigorously. So program directors really need to uh, uh, keep a closer eye on this and, and uh, make sure that the interns are, are protected. Carl, one of the other findings that um, I know that residents would be interested in knowing, well, how, what about my objective performance in terms of, let's say, standardized testing or certifying or qualifying examinations, which you all looked at, um, and um, can you share what the results that, you know, how did people do on app sites and and uh, oral boards and written boards? Sure. So that was another study that came out in the uh, February uh, 2017 Journal of the American College of Surgeons. And we looked at uh, AppSite, um, or, uh, written board, and oral board scores. And there were really no differences uh, between the two study arms. And uh, it was more just a check to be sure that there was nothing occurring. But, uh, you know, you can imagine that one year of the trial is a relatively short period of time to really see an impact on um, test performance. And so I think those studies will be much more informative and interesting uh, when we look at this a few years out. One of the things about the 80-hour work week, uh, whichever policy you follow, is was that the thought was the residents would have more time to read. I don't remember having much time to read um, during residency and so that or to study and, and therefore they would do better on examination. I thought that was one of the um, expected outcomes. And I don't know, did I ever come to fruition? And, you know, were residents, in fact, um, with the 80-hour work week, whether flexible or standard policies, were they getting more time that they can just sit down and read? And were they, in fact, sitting down and reading and doing better on these examinations, potentially? There were some studies early on that showed that the residents weren't necessarily using the time to to read more or prepare more for cases, uh, but uh, and nor were they sleeping more necessarily. Uh, they were using the time to um, take on activities outside of work, extracurricular activities, and um, and some of that is certainly great. But if the the intent was to get residents to sleep more, that wasn't necessarily occurring. Um, which doesn't mean we should, you know, roll back the 80 hours or anything like that. Right. But um, I think there are multiple ways to achieve uh, better resident well-being. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be sleeping to to do that. There can be other approaches. Uh, what are your thoughts about what are your thoughts about let's say easing up even on the 80-hour work week? Or is that do you, you mean increasing the cap? Yeah, increasing the cap. I mean, I know it'd be controversial, but what what are your thoughts about that? I mean, what's to say that 90 hours would the residents would be quite satisfied with 90 hours because now they have this continuity, they get to be stick around for more cases. Uh, maybe even the subset of residents who say, you know, I don't feel prepared at the end of my five years anymore, like they, for example, used to be because they were here all the time doing cases. Um, or is that that ship has sailed and not not really worth revisiting? I don't think we should touch the 80-hour limit. I think it would be uh, political dynamite. I don't think it's necessary. I think we should be able to train residents in 80 hours a week with this 
flexibility that's been get offered in uh, the last few weeks here, I think that uh, that should be a set limit. We shouldn't we shouldn't look at that. There should be a number of other things that we should focus on uh, to improve resident training. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you said it right. That ship has sailed. We should we shouldn't even begin to entertain that notion. I'd agree with that. I mean, I think that there's there's plenty of time in an 80-hour week. Some of it's how we use it. Some of it's the worrying about. You know, with an eight with an 80-hour cap, I think most of our residents on the schedules that we've made, you know, with the service, you know, the services the way they are designed now to keep it under 80 hours, most places, I think you could almost stop checking, and they would stay under 80 hours. I mean, I think it. So I don't think that going up above that is really would be helpful. I think we can kind of stop worrying about it with even without worrying about that number. The one I worry about more that I think gets us more often is the 24 plus four. You know, I don't think they should work an entire extra day, but really wrapping up everything in in four hours the next day, that continues to be a challenge. But I don't think the total hours, I think you could do almost any sort of intervention that you wanted to do in terms of autonomy or training or even you could, you know, teach five different new skills and financial management or all these different things that people think we should add to, to training programs. Uh, I think you could do any of that within eight, 80 hours. I, I wonder, if, have you all noticed any decrease maybe in the number of handoff errors as a result of um, flex, the more flexible policy? Because we get a lot of handoffs now. I mean, there there, um, there there are lots of shift handoffs or lots of just handoffs in general. And I wonder if there's less, um, with increased continuity, uh, even in the flexible policy, do we think, do we foresee that there may be less also handoff errors to the next service? I think anecdotally that's uh, true, that there have been things lost in communication when you have to, particularly on the weekends, when you have to sign out multiple times to different groups who aren't the primary team. So uh, I, empirically, I don't know that there are great data to um, stand on for that, but I think um, most people do feel that the increased handoffs uh, lead to breakdowns in communication. It's a particularly vulnerable point in uh, our care process. So there should be ways to improve that. and. People always say that, well, you know, don't blame the handoff, blame the way that you, you do the handoff and work on that and improve that. And that's easy to say, but it's been hard to um, to act on. Uh, there have been a lot of people doing research on that, and it's been hard to really improve the 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 way we are handing off information. Right. I think right. a lot of it, a lot of those handoff errors don't don't turn out to be harmful events, you know, People are smart, or you know, our residents are smart, and they they work around serious lapses. You know, if somebody didn't tell them about something, if it becomes a big issue, they'll work it out. But you know, I think some of it is think people just don't get discharged in a timely manner. Things get put off till the next day, till the team comes in. So they're not necessarily measurable by serious handoff adverse events. They're just most of them, I think, are inefficiencies. And so hopefully, some of those things will improve. Although it, like you said, I think it's going to be hard to measure those specifically. And that they, they may not, the handoff errors in and of themselves may not be completely or solely attributable to the um, uh, work hour, duty hours. I think probably just, but it's certainly a side effect of it. Um, 
so Carl, what uh, what should we what um, those of us in uh, in training programs, what should we be looking out for? What's coming down the pike, and uh, what what are you guys working on? So some of the uh, the data from the first trial led us to look more at um, a number of aspects of resident well-being, burnout, and uh, resident safety, such as car accidents and needle sticks. Um, there weren't differences between the study arms per se, but there are some certainly some issues with that. And so we've started to focus in on those topics, and you'll see a lot more from us coming about um, the scope of the problem and then working to implement some uh, solutions. Yeah, that's fantastic. We can, I, I can't wait to, to um, find out what's coming up. Um, Alan and Sam, do you guys have any more questions for Dr. Villamoria? I just want to say I think that it was a, a remarkably done study, and I think that besides offering us more flexibility and training, it's opened the door for us to continue to talk about well wellness and well-being and autonomy, all of which are very hot topics. And I think it's remarkable that all of all of what you've done is encouraging that conversation as well. I agree with that. It's it's really it's really well done and really well thought out. And we, I mean, as a program director, I really appreciate your work on it. And I, the listeners, obviously, most of them don't, you know, check the program director listserv, but I would say that the program directors as a whole um, are very thankful for this work and for your work on this and your leadership on this. It's something that, you know, I think I certainly would never have been able to envision how to do this. And I think it's a product of, you know, you know, your thinking and the training that you had and the and the situation you're in. I think it's something to when when residents talk about, well, I want to do this and that, you know, that's one of the ways to be able to do that is to figure out how, what kind of research training do I need? You know, how do I, how do I take my outcomes research training and turn it into big stuff? And this is, this is one of them. I think if, you know, when your, when your article is published by the New England Journal, the minute you step off the podium from giving the oral presentation, I think that's a, that's the gold standard research project right there. It's yeah. Really, really <laughs> impressive. To the rest of us. Well, thank um, you. But let's be clear, this is a huge team uh, with uh, a lot of great people helping. And we have to recognize the American Board of Surgery and Frank Lewis and the American College of Surgeons and uh, David Hoyt for their vision and guidance in navigating some of the politics to even um, allow the ACGME to to consider doing something like this. So it took it took our entire community. Really, it's you know 117 programs, 151 hospitals, um, all the NISQIP team, the program directors, the program coordinators. Our whole community came together to answer an interesting and important question. So. Um, uh, I think the the whole group deserves thanks for um, a, a great job. Absolutely, it really, I, honestly, it increased my percent or my my perception or, or opinion, I guess, of the of the board and of the ACGME and of the ACS, all all of them that that they were willing to get behind this. You know, that that given the opportunity, they saw this as a big deal and they were willing to really step up and do it. I has has really upped my opinion of of all of those groups. Yeah, and there are unique the, leaders in place right now of those three organizations, and uh, the the fact that they're all willing to um, bring science to bear on policy decisions, uh, particularly the ACGME, um, is a real 
improvement and something that we should continue to encourage and push uh, regarding any future policy decisions. This is, um, I think, for audience members, particularly those who are about to start training or who are in training, I think this is a fantastic time to be in general surgery residency. You're witnessing governing bodies, leaders like Dr. Billy Moria, pushing the envelope of the training paradigm, which we've sort of been sitting on for the last decade. And uh, I just think it's a really, really exciting time. Dr. Bill Moria, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise with us on the ASC podcast. Um, and uh, we really, really look forward to all the uh, exciting work that you're going to be doing and sharing with us in the future. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure, and uh, best of luck with this new podcast series. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, audience members, don't forget to tune in to the next podcast. I really look forward to connecting with you here at the ASC podcast. Thank you, everyone. And that wraps up another edition of the AIC podcast brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology, the Association for Surgical Education. You can check out many great resources on the AIC website at www.surgicaleducation.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast series where we discuss pressing issues in surgical education. We invite you to join AIC and get involved and wish you success in your pursuit of surgical education excellence.